With the Taliban taking Kabul, should we worry about a rise in domestic terrorism? We go to New Zealand, where the Prime Minister appears to have lost her marvels and is locking down the entire country after one case of COVID. And joining me tonight on Talking Pints, leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg. So last night, after we came off air, Joe Biden gave a press conference. He spoke for about 20 minutes uh, and he was wholly unrepentant about the decision unilaterally to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. I have to say what surprised me most about the press conference was his complete refusal, complete refusal to take any questions afterwards. It really was quite extraordinary. Is it that he's not capable of answering those questions? Is he really fit to lead the United States of America? These are questions that are being asked and questions that will be asked as the next few weeks and months develop. But there's no question about one thing. He was wholly unrepentant about the decision. But it was a decision made with no reference to his closest allies, uh, without any plan as to how to evacuate thousands of foreign nationals. But let's hear what he had to say last night. But I do not regret my decision to end America's war fighting in Afghanistan and maintain a laser focus on our counterterrorism missions there and other parts of the world. Our mission to degrade the terrorist threat of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and kill Osama bin Laden was a success. Our decades-long effort to overcome centuries of history and permanently change and remake Afghanistan was not. And I wrote and believed it never could be. I cannot and will not ask our troops to fight on endlessly in another, in another country's civil war, taking casualties, suffering life-shattering injuries, leaving families broken by grief and loss. This is not in our national security interest. Well, that was Joe Biden last night saying that America was involved fighting in a civil war. Well, there wasn't a civil war. Uh, who knows? Maybe after the, after the Taliban takeover, there might be one. Today, a press conference by the Taliban themselves, in which they say women will be treated well. But all sorts of evidence coming, uh, video clips coming out of Kabul and elsewhere, suggesting that their words are not sincere. And, and interesting in some ways uh, to see major broadcasters showing the Taliban doing this. I wonder whether perhaps that legitimizes them in some ways. It has also come to light that President Obama released five prisoners from Guantanamo Bay in 2014, uh, two of whom were directly involved in, in the taking of Kabul. And I think uh, we can say with some confidence that Joe Biden and some of the failures of previous administrations have made the world a less safe and a less secure place. And I note today that the Greek government and a senior official in the German Conservative Party have both said we will not allow 2015 to happen again. We will not allow millions of people to cross the Mediterranean. Uh, so there's a big discussion about a wave of refugees, of migrants leaving Afghanistan, the Europeans already getting panicky. And my biggest concern is that jihadis that live in the United Kingdom and in Europe will be emboldened by what they've seen the Taliban do in Afghanistan. And one of the top bosses of MI5 has said pretty much that. So my question tonight to you is, does the fall of Kabul, does the Taliban taking control of Afghanistan, could it lead to an increase in domestic terror in this country? Tell me what you think, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Now, joining me is Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, because, Darren, Parliament is back. Dominic Raab was found on a beach in Crete. Uh, the Foreign Secretary had to come home. And MPs have had their holidays cut short. Uh, back into a House of Commons tomorrow. 
It'll be a fairly packed House of Commons, won't it? Yeah, because, of course, uh, the rules on social distancing and on being able to dial in, essentially, remotely, have now gone. So there will be an awful lot of MPs. And I think, Nigel, there are kind of four big things on the plate for the Prime Minister to address tomorrow. First of all, issue number one is trying to get Brits out, essentially, of Afghanistan. Uh, Clearly, there are, you know, hundreds, we think maybe up to a thousand British citizens themselves or passport holders who will still need to be evacuated in the days to come. And then there are thousands more of Afghanis, Afghanis who essentially have worked with the Brits over the last couple of years who've got essentially a right mm. to come uh, to Britain. Uh, we heard today uh, from the man in charge of that, uh, a Vice Admiral Key, and he was suggesting that unlike yesterday, things are settled down at the airport, but this is going to take time. This is going to be weeks, not days, to get those people out. And there will be questions, because clearly we've heard today from several people tweeting, suggesting uh, that ultimately, you know, that they are caught up, including a British pregnant woman who is still not being able to make a way to yeah. that airport. Additionally, uh, the second point will be um, on the resettlement scheme, because there is much talk about the government relaxing the rules when it comes to resettlement for Afghans. So that essentially more asylum seekers from there legitimately would be allowed to settle in Britain. Uh, Pretty Patel says that some 2,200 have already settled since the end of June, really, this year, thousands more previous to that. But it looks like Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, is working on a, a much more relaxed scheme as the, the, the word from government will get details on that. Then there are questions about the terrorism threat. There will be many, many MPs and indeed peers raising questions about essentially the fall of the Taliban yeah. and what it means for us in Britain. And finally, there's this wider question, and it's about relying on America. It's about this idea, and it's not just a British question, it's a question, I think, for NATO and specifically for European military powers, France, Britain, Germany, essentially that they cannot seemingly take any independent military action without the United States. And we've heard today from people like George Robertson, the former NATO chief, and other senior politicians in Europe saying that distinctly, this is a big question for NATO. Can yes. you act independently of the United States military? Yes, and did America treat NATO and NATO members and those that have fought with it well, with any degree of respect? I mean, I said this last night, nothing has changed again tonight. Isn't it extraordinary yeah. that the special relationship, the two nations that have fought more closely than any yeah. other yeah. in Afghanistan over the last two decades, and has Joe Biden picked up the phone to Boris it, Johnson? Not the at special all. relationship, Darren, is not looking very special. We'll speak to you tomorrow after Parliament is recalled. But we're going to go to the USA now because joining me is General Keith Kellogg and he served as National Security Advisor to former US President Donald Trump and Vice President Mike Pence. And he was also Chief of Staff of the US National Security Council. Can I say, uh, General Kellogg, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. Nigel, thanks for having me. I really do appreciate it. I don't know whether you caught the tail end of my last conversation with our political editor, but, you know, a feeling that NATO and in particular the UK and, and, I mean, you know, if you think about it, really, ever since 1917, on virtually every major conflict, we fought side by side and we've been absolutely at the heart of NATO. and, And whilst you're far bigger in military terms than we are, you know, I've always felt from what Americans have said to me over the decades, that they really valued working with British forces. And it would appear that President Biden has taken this decision unilaterally without consulting the British or anybody else in NATO. And I I do put it to you, General, that this kind of behaviour does threaten the future of a military alliance that has worked pretty well for the last 70 years. Yeah, Nigel, it really has. And look, I I wouldn't take this one issue and and really blow it up and say there's problems with the future. Look, I was in the Trump White House for 1,461 days, the whole time we were there. And we served in the military alongside very closely with the British and with the French as well, be it Syria or be Iraq or anywhere else. And we always had great feelings for the British, and we worked very, very well with them. Very candidly, Nigel, this would not have happened with Donald Trump in the White House. We came together with a good plan. We worked a hard plan for a very phased withdrawal using gates coming out of Afghanistan that would ensure that there was going to be peace and reconciliation going forward. may have been uneasy, but we had it set up to go that way. And I know the president, because I was in there in the Oval Office several times, 
when he would pick up the phone and he would call the allies, he called your prime minister, he would call uh, Macron, he would call anybody he'd want to at the time, but he also called Mullah Bharar, who was the Taliban's chief negotiator, and made it, made it very, very clear to him what would happen if Bharar uh, violated the discussions we were having going forward. In fact, you know, you can recall, Nigel, that since he made the decision to withdraw February of a year ago, and we made the agreement with the Taliban, and we talked to the Taliban, President Trump did, there were no American service members killed in Afghanistan during that time. But we maintain that relationship. We're very proud of that relationship. I'm but, personally very but, proud of this relationship but, during the time I spoke to NATO. No, well, thank you for saying that, uh, because I think we perhaps need to hear that at this moment in time, especially before the House of Commons gets together in special session tomorrow. But, General, you know, Donald Trump had, since 2009, been pretty sceptical about our continued presence in Afghanistan. <clears throat> he made it an electoral issue, and Joe Biden matched it. How would, specifically, how would a Trump final withdrawal have been different from what Joe Biden did? It's significant. Here was the deal, and I'll cut to the, to the immediate yeah. chase scene, as we say in America, going yeah. forward. The whole idea was to have a, an agreement, a peace agreement, between the Taliban and with uh, President Ghani to have a reconciliation government in uh, Afghanistan. And we were not going to withdraw that final tranche of troops, 2,500 troops plus 3,500 military under our Central Intelligence Agency. They were not going to stand down, nor was our air power going to stand down until that agreement was signed. We weren't going to walk away unilaterally. There was never an intent to do that. That was the plan going forward. And it was working. I thought it was working very, very well. And then uh, in 20 January, we changed governments. And I have no idea where the plan went, but it clearly went somewhere. Okay. And they made that unilateral decision to move on. Would you understand, General Kellogg, that here in the United Kingdom and in Europe as well, you know, we have suffered from jihadi attacks, too many jihadi attacks. It's been mercifully quiet just recently. We've had too many of them. Um, and we know we have dangerous cells in these countries who will feel empowered by what has happened with the rapid Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And, and, and would it uh, surprise you to know that there are voices on this side of the pond saying that America has made us a far less safe place and has opened up the door once again to international terrorism? Yeah, I would, here's my pushback, Nigel, is with President Trump, remember... We killed Soleimani. Remember, we killed Baghdadi. Remember, in, in support with the UK and also the French, we reduced and then eliminated the ISIS caliphate. When we found a terrorist out there, he threatened our interest. We went out, we found him, and we killed him. President Trump did that a lot. So it depends on the leadership you have. I have confidence in what we did. The world should have had confidence in what we did. And now it has to take another step and take a deep breath and figure out where we're going right now. Well, that's right, because where do we go right now? I mean, there is no way back. Um, there is going to be no political will, certainly, to go back into Afghanistan. And I think this threat, this increased threat of international terror is all too real. General, final question. Was the last 20 years of us together with you in Afghanistan worth it? Well, I think there's going to be some hard questions asked about how we handle ourselves, not the last 20 years, but the last 18, because the first two years were righteous. We went in to defeat al-Qaeda, which we did, to get bin Laden. We eventually got him in Pakistan. And colleague Sheikh Mohammed, the mastermind of 9-11, is now sitting in a jail cell in Guantanamo. It was the last 18 years we have to ask ourselves, did we do it right? Were we creating the right force on the ground? Uh, was this the military that we should have developed in conjunction with our NATO allies? Were we correct? Were we correct in how we trained them, how we equipped them, and how we and how we helped them lead going forward? So, I think when you say was it worth it, mm. it was always worth it in the sense that we gave a noble effort, and we did that in conjunction with our NATO alliance. And I think we should feel proud about that. The end state, I don't like what happened, but. I would say shoulder, soldiering shoulder to shoulder with our NATO allies, 
we did a pretty good job. Okay, thank you very much indeed. That was General Keith Kellogg. And, you know, he did serve the Trump administration. He believes the Trump withdrawal plan would have been very different. There are some real questions about our special relationship and indeed about the integrity of NATO. But let's get back to this question of domestic terror. And it could come in two ways. One, jihadis that are embedded but have been dormant, who perhaps have been given encouragement. And, 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 you know, the MI5 Director General, Ken McCallum, has said the Taliban's victory in Afghanistan would inspire young jihadists in the West. That's quite strong stuff coming from a boss of MI5. I wonder what we can do about it. Well, joining me now is Chris Phillips, former head of the National Counterterrorism Security Office and a former detective chief inspector of the Metropolitan Police. He's now founder and managing director of the International Project and Prepare Security Office. Chris, good evening. Welcome to GB News. Good evening, Nigel. Do you agree with Ken McCallum that what has happened, and don't forget it was supposed to take 90 days for Kabul to fall, it happened in 90 hours. Is Ken McCallum right that this could be inspiring jihadists in Britain and in Europe? Yes, of course he's right. And, uh, and, the, and the key thing here is uh, every, every group that hates the West, that wants to see the West end, has been emboldened. Uh, and there's a lot of countries out there that will be very nervous. And India, uh, for one, Nigeria, um, and, and lots of other countries around the world will be really a little bit less safe today. And of course, that extends into Europe and into the UK. There are many people here that would support them. And, uh, and, and let's not forget, this is not just um, ISIS. We've been fighting ISIS uh, for the last five years, but actually Al-Qaeda were, the base, uh, were based within the Taliban Afghanistan. So, so yes, it's another group um, that just sees us as the enemy uh, and, uh, and are more likely to attack us now than they were yesterday. Chris, going back a few years when we had a series of terrorist incidents in London and around the UK, you and I spoke quite regularly. We have been through, I think, a sort of mercifully calm period as far as terror, terror attacks are concerned in the last couple of years. In your view, do our security forces, our security services, do they have the assets, the physical assets, the human assets, the financial assets, do they have the assets to keep us as safe as is possible? Well, Nigel, I think they, they've got assets, uh, but it depends on the sheer numbers of terrorists that they're dealing with. Uh, and we know that there are many, many thousands of people within the UK, and you can multiply that across Europe, who, who want to do us harm still. We are releasing prisoners from uh, long sentences who are still uh, jihadis and still uh, want to do further terrorist attacks, and that's what we've seen recently. Don't, let's not forget that what we saw in Afghanistan previously was the Taliban, and they, they really went for the big set-piece attacks. And what we've seen over the last five to ten years has been much more low-level individuals trying to attack us. So I think it, it may take a little while. We've got people in the UK that are a threat, but I think we may well return to these big set-piece attacks that we saw, uh, but it may take a few years for them to, to, to get organised to do that. OK, so, I mean, the message to people is don't panic, but, but we just have to be conscious and aware that these threats exist within our society. Well, they do, and they, they, they've always been there, actually. But, uh, but of course, what's, what this has done, and what you've already said, actually, is uh, this has emboldened yeah. the people that hate us. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. if it emboldens them to attack us, then, you know, we can expect more attacks, and we do need to be careful and aware of that. Thank you very much indeed, Chris Phillips. Do come back and speak to us again before too long. Thank you for your informed view. Well, I'm asking this question. You know, could we see a rise in domestic terrorism as a result of what has happened in Afghanistan? So please let me know your opinions, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can also send in your Barrage the Farage questions, which I read out at the end of the show, having never had prior sight of them. So far, nobody's completely managed to trip me over, but you never know, one day you might. So please have a go, Barrage the Farage. Now, I wondered earlier, I was watching a press conference with the Taliban from Kabul, and it was being taken by some broadcasters, in fact, many broadcasters all over the world. And I, I wondered to myself, 
Are we legitimising the Taliban by allowing them to have that news conference and to say what they were saying? And it did slightly bother me. Well, I suppose one school of thought is um, that if Boris Johnson doesn't as yet want to recognise them and governments around the West don't want to recognise them, maybe we are legitimising them. I guess the other school of thought is, well, it's too late now, it's done. Well, to get a view on this, I'm joined now by Tom Wilson, senior fellow at the Counter Terrorism, Extremist Terrorism Group. And I wonder, Tom, did that legitimise the Taliban today or was it sensible given that they're now in control? I think it's quite reasonable that the media might want to show a clip broadcast some of, of that press conference. It was clearly an historically important moment, but we should all be very wide-eyed and have our eyes wide open about the fact that the Taliban are showing a particular face, a, a, a faux moderate side of themselves. And it's incumbent upon journalists that when they inform the public by showing clips of those sorts of press conferences, that they also explain to the public that Islamists and jihadists have a long record of, of saying one thing when speaking to the West and, and doing um, something quite different and far more worse in practice. I think that's absolutely essential, particularly because of the fact that, as your previous guest has spoken about, there are people in this country who are very pleased about the fact the Taliban have taken over. They openly have been celebrating it on social media. Um, it's, it's essential that we do not legitimise the Taliban in the eyes of these people. In fact, that we do the opposite, that we delegitimise them and we show them the barbaric um, group that they are. And I've seen, I'm sure you've seen as well, Tom, I've seen video clips coming from Kabul today of women being treated badly. Um, I've had reports um, of interpreters in Kandahar being murdered in the street outside their houses last Thursday. Um, how much evidence do you have, or, or perhaps not have, that this Taliban, far from being the new woke Taliban, as they try and sell themselves, are really just the same old people that we, got, we went there to get rid of 20 years ago? The Taliban have already been in control of areas of Afghanistan where I think they've shown just how brutal they are. And it's absurd that uh, people in Western governments and spokespeople for Western governments have been saying things like they call upon the Taliban to have an inclusive and representative government and to involve women or to respect human rights, because we know that they're not going to do that. To even speak about them in such a way, I think, does give them an air of legitimacy to pretend that they, they care about such things when evidently they clearly don't. And again, they, because of the security threat that we have in this country, we don't want to encourage people to be traveling there and to think this is a country they might want to go and live in. So we have to go to the greatest lengths that we can to expose with the footage that's coming out, with the stories from people which are horrific, to make sure that you know, young Muslim people here in this country hear about that and realize that's not a society they want to be part of or to replicate here in the West in any way. Tom, you've um, done a work in the past and you've tried to study Islamism in this country to get a feel for the scope of it, the potential threat of it. Um, I'm asking GB News viewers this evening whether they're worried you know, whether there could be a rise in domestic terrorism as a result of what's happened in the last few days in Afghanistan. Uh, how do you feel about that question? Absolutely. I mean, I would remind people that in 2017, obviously, we saw a spate of attacks and a very small one that when not particularly reported was by a guy who was actually a Taliban trained bomb maker. In the spring of 2017, he attempted to carry out a knife attack near Downing Street on Whitehall. So we've already seen that things like that can happen. I can't think of an instance where jihadists have taken control of territory and where there haven't then been training camps or people have traveled yeah. from the West and then traveled back. The government needs to use the full range of powers it has to prevent people from returning or to keep them in prison if any of them do find their way back. And new powers do now exist since since 2019 to try and deal with what we saw with ISIS. The government can designate particular territories as criminal to travel to for terrorist purposes. I think the government needs to get on the front foot and consider doing the same with parts of Afghanistan to make sure that no one travels there. Or if they do, you don't have this problem of trying to find evidence the issues we've had with Shamima Begum, that actually it's very clear that if we know they travel to that area controlled by jihadists, then they go to prison for a long time. Tom Wilson, thank you very much for your opinion and a very strong opinion. And that was Tom Wilson of the Counter Extremism Group. Now, at the start of the pandemic, we were told that Jacinda Ardern, 
this re-elected leader in New Zealand, that she was the one who knew how to deal with COVID-19. We were told that female leaders all over the world were just so much better at this. Well, as a result of a COVID outbreak in New Zealand, well, when I say COVID outbreak, I mean one COVID case, she's locking down the whole of New Zealand. What the Farage comes next. Well, I've been asking you whether we could see a rise in domestic terrorism as a result of Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban taking over. And your messages are coming in, as they always do. Well, in an email says, I don't see how Biden can be fit to be the US president when his advisers won't let him even answer questions from the media. Yep, well, in, I made that point at the top of the show. He didn't take a single question. Quite extraordinary, but then I don't think he's capable of taking questions. Jonathan on email says, the pullout from Afghanistan will make the world a more dangerous place. The country will be a safe haven and training ground for jihadists. Yet it's worth noting the Taliban themselves have not attacked in the West, but they've allowed, they've allowed within Afghanistan those extremist groups to do their bidding and to do their plotting, uh, which is a very, very worrying thing. Plus, we're going to get large numbers of people leaving Afghanistan. There'll be some with genuine reasons, but who's to say that if we get big migrant routes that they won't be used for bad purposes. Now, something that I found quite extraordinary is we're brought up with the idea of heroes. And one of the heroes that I was brought up with was Sir Francis Drake. You know, the man who was coolly playing bowls down in Plymouth when the Armada arrived and insisted upon finishing the game before going out to face the Spanish galleons. He was the man who had actually defeated this very, very powerful Spanish Armada. Uh, he was the man uh, through piracy that helped enrich uh, the royal family in this country uh, and, and many other people too. Uh, and yes, of course, he was involved in the slave trade. In those days, everybody was involved in the slave trade. Uh, we know that, we understand that. But he's always held a place as being a national hero. Indeed, my house at school was known as Drake, so it's something that I've been very much brought up with. Extraordinary to see that in Tavistock in West Devon, which was the birthplace of this Elizabethan sailor, there is a statue, unsurprisingly a statue, to Sir Francis Drake. And the local town council in Tavistock uh, put out a consultation asking people whether there needed to be an explanation that went with the statue. And 89 people from this area of Tavistock wrote in to say there's no need at all, the statue speaks for itself. One letter came in saying, oh, well, because of the awful things that went on, uh, there needs to be an explanation. Um, and Tavistock Town Council have decided to add a plaque to Sir Francis Drake's statue, uh, telling us that he brutally attacked African communities. He looted and plundered Spanish towns and ships. He was involved in several horrific slave trading expeditions. Oh, there is a good bit. He played a major role in defending England from the Spanish Armada. And quite why we need this level of historical revisionism, I don't know. I really objected to the Colston statue being torn down in Bristol last year. If the people of Bristol want that statue removed, they can make it an issue. They could call a local referendum on it. They could vote for councillors who say it's time to update Bristol. I wouldn't have any objection if the democratic will of the people said we want to update or change our monuments. Clearly, Tavistock Town Council had made their minds up before they launched their so-called farcical consultation. And I think, well, if all of our national heroes are to be removed or explained away like this, I wonder what we'll actually be left with. Now... My WTF, my What the Farage moment, the big one today is New Zealand. Jacinda Ardern 
the recently re-elected Prime Minister of New Zealand, held up by so many in the world to be this wonderful, fantastic, exciting woman. She's already endangered the Five Eyes special relationship by making it clear that New Zealand sees China run by the communist Chinese, Chinese party. She sees the relationship with them as being more important in many ways than her relationship with Australia, Canada, the USA or us. And she said it's full steam ahead in terms of our relationship with China. That is the future. No mention of the fact that it's run by a very nasty, brutal communist party. But now what she's done just, to me, strains credulity. One case of Covid, a 58-year-old man, one case of Covid, and she's locking down the whole country. The whole of the country for three days, including both islands, I mean, work that one out, um, and parts of the country for a full seven days. And that means everything's closed. At least that is my understanding of it. Well, getting up early in the morning for a sign, please. And joining me now from Wellington in New Zealand is broadcaster and journalist Rex Widderstrom. Rex, a very good early morning to you. Good morning, Nigel, from a dark and stormy Wellington. Well, it's good of you to get up for us because you had nothing to get up for, really, did you? Because the offices are closed, public transport's not running, the schools are closed, and apart from hospitals, it's difficult to see what's open. What is going on, Rex? Help us. Well, we've got supermarkets open, so the people who uh, stampeded there last night to stock up on toilet paper uh, will be disappointed to know they could have done that this morning if they'd uh, only waited. Uh, and we've got uh, pharmacies open for prescriptions, uh, GPs for urgent appointments and that kind of thing. However, people are, as you can see in that photo, that's Auckland Airport last night. They're fleeing uh, Auckland to try and get out of the uh, the seven-day lockdown into the three-day lockdown. But look, based on her past performance, uh, I don't don't think either of those figures are, are true. Uh, we were promised uh, in the last harsh lockdown that it would be four weeks. Uh, and then, of course, it's, it's stretched out to six, uh, as she likes to say, out of an abundance of caution. So uh, it's much easier to introduce a restriction uh, and, and have people say, well, well, it's only for seven days. They get used to it. And uh, as that uh, starts to come to an end, you pop up again and say, well, look, sorry, I haven't quite got a handle on this. Uh, we're going to have to go to you know twice that at least. I think. But it's one case of COVID and mm -hmm. but both islands are being locked down. Where's the sense of that one? Well, yes, it, it is puzzling because the uh, the gentleman uh, has, uh, has has been assiduous in his tracking, the use of the tracking app. So we know exactly where he's been. He's been around Auckland uh, and he's been around the Coromandel. Uh, he uh, lives alone. He works with a very uh, with his wife. Uh, he he works with a very small number of people. So it would be quite easy to uh, say that this is confined to a very small area. Make sure none of those people had travelled, for instance, to the to the South Island uh, and let the rest of us get on with our business and this is what she did last time when there was an outbreak in Auckland. Auckland locked down uh, Wellington went to uh, social distancing and those sorts of things and we mainly got on with our lives uh, the panic this time is that they think this might be a Delta case, uh, they don't actually know that yet uh, but uh, she's, she's pulled the uh, emergency cord uh, and brought the bus to a halt nonetheless. And is the New Zealand public compliant with this or is there a sense of outrage that this is just completely over the top? Look, social media tends to suggest that, um, yet again, people are very compliant, and yet uh, the system has been known for some time to be uh, faulty in many respects. The border was supposedly completely closed, and uh, we've closed it again to Australia now. It's actually quite porous. Uh, there are people leaving New Zealand, um, visiting uh, areas where there is quite severe COVID, India, uh, places like that, and then being allowed back into the country. Uh, so, of course, this is uh, spreading it further. The problem also with this particular gentleman is that there's no link to anything like that. He hasn't left the country. As far as he's aware, he hasn't been in contact with anybody that's left the country. So this case has just popped up uh, in the middle of the community. And the, so that's also a, a bit of the cause of the panic. But to give you an idea of what's not working, um, if you are outside of New Zealand or you're in New Zealand are trying to come home, yeah. um, you look for a ministry of uh, quarantine places. Uh, a journalist just put a, a story out, he refreshed the page 10,000 times and he couldn't get a booking to get home. So uh, clearly there's something wrong. I've had a uh, my, my first uh, vaccination. Uh, the, uh, the 
director general of uh, health uh, confessed last night he hasn't had his his uh, and now they've closed the vaccine uh, uh, delivery yeah. centers now if anybody's capable of dealing with somebody who may have COVID and continuing on with their work oh. it's a vaccine center it does sound to be really very very badly run indeed but rex thank you for joining us um, well, Thank folks, you. You, thought, you thought things were bad here. Just look at the mess New Zealand is making of it and Australia, too. Well, joining me tonight on Talking Pints is the leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Conservative Member of Parliament for North East Somerset. And I have to say, Jacob, welcome to GB News. Thank you. Now, normally we provide drinks whatever drinks the guest wants and we provide them and it can be a beer or it can be a glass of wine or a cup of tea or whatever it may be but you have brought the drinks in for us just tell us what we've got here please well we've got the cider that i make at home so these are re-smog apples that my children throw into this fantastic musher that puts out uh, the juice and obviously then all the uh, remains of the apples and then it sits in a barn for a year and comes out as cider and we make about 30 gallons of it a year which i have to give away because I only drink about a pint of it a week. So I don't <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what sort of strength is it, Jacob? I have no idea. You right. taste, you tell, you're the expert. Well, cheers, Dr. cheers. You're, well, you're, you're this, is, this is the re uh, cider. Let's give it a go. Oh, wow, that's real. That's real. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to drink it all whilst... No, 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 that's fine. You can afterwards. Jacob, you know, you're a man of many parts. You know, you're known predominantly as Member of Parliament politician but you've got lots and lots of interests in life so let's start discussing something really important we've been spent most of the program on afghanistan and the threat that it may pose here and of course parliament's back tomorrow we'll come to that but let's just begin with a great passion of yours because i did bump into you briefly last friday because like you i'm a cricket nut and i love the test game i love the five-day game and I think when we met on Friday, we thought, well, England are battling back and doing quite well. And then on the Saturday, Joe Root gets another magnificent big hundred. Um, and the whole thing fell to pieces. It, were, you, were you there yesterday? I was there yesterday, looking forward to an England victory. And I was there with my uh, three elder sons, with Peter, Thomas and Anselm. And we went full of beans and thinking <laughs> it would all be very good. And then there was that amazing partnership, wasn't there? The Indians, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Boomerah, who averaged two or something before the series mm. began, getting 30-odd. And I must confess, that's one of the things I love about cricket. It's such fun when somebody who can't really bat... We all cheer when Anderson scores a few runs mm -hmm. because it's just unexpected and yep. it lifts the game. Even when the result isn't then what you want, it's just great to see somebody doggedly... Um, battling away. Yeah, we were, I mean, at that point, England were firm favourites to win. Uh, absolutely. You know, no question England were going to win, and in the end, India win, and, yeah, English cricket, not a great advert. We're not a great side, really, are we? We've got some great players. Um, Root is absolutely magnificent. Anderson yes. is heroic. Yes. Anderson is a reassurance to all of us who are getting on a bit, because <laughs> by cricketing standards, well, he, he's quite an age. Uh, and I had Jeffrey Boycott so, sitting in that seat last Thursday, and he said the same as you. We've got some world-class players, but overall, we could do better. But I'm, I'm with you, actually. The joy of sport is its complete unpredictability. And actually, yeah, I have to say, well done, India. Yesterday, they did incredibly well. Jacob, one of the things that those that really know you understand is you first appeared on television aged about 11 with a financial times and i think at the time your father was running something called the fleet street letter he was he was yes. yeah yeah he actually offered me a job there once believe it or not i don't think i've ever told you that he did he did that. he did but my father's yeah. great admirer of yours I, I, know, I know he was but you've always been interested in investment mm. in stock markets and what to do with money and but something new has arrived. We knew about it back in the 70s, into the 80s. Uh, it damaged people's savings in a way I don't think anything else can. It's the I word. It's inflation. And we've got the Bank of England and the Fed in America saying, oh, don't worry your little heads. It'll just be a little short-term thing. And it won't be a problem. And yet I've always taken the view that inflation is a disease of money. And once you catch that, often, nearly often caused by governments and by, by excessive spending and borrowing. And then once you get that disease, it's very difficult to get rid of. So just with your investment yeah. manager hat on, how do you see inflation? Well, I think 
going to the basics of economics, uh, if you increase the money supply at beyond a reasonable level, it has an inflationary effect. And it's very difficult to work out the precise causality. So monetary policy in the 1980s didn't particularly work because it was hard to say a growth in the money supply of a particular measure of a certain level is directly inflationary. But that the simple point that if you create an enormous amount of money, it has to go somewhere, money must find a home, mm-hmm. is true. And there was a very important House of Lords report, um, Lord Forsyth, Michael Forsyth was, I think, the chairman of the committee that put out, warning us that we mustn't get addicted to free money. And I think that's right. And you've begun to see, partly because of um, trade distortions created by the pandemic, so uh, containers being in the wrong part of the world and therefore transport costs going up, the beginnings of inflation, you've seen a very rapid increase in wages, which is in part extremely good because you want people to be getting better off. You want a real increase in wages, but it mustn't be too fast because that leads to inflationary pressures. So I think you're right to be concerned. I'm pleased that the Bank of England has said that it will look at reducing quantitative easing before raising interest rates. I think that's... Obviously, the Bank of England's independent. It's not for me as a minister to be saying what they ought to be doing. But it seems nonetheless that that is the right way around, that it's withdrawing some of that uh, excess liquidity that was needed to deal with a crisis and gradually normalising. So I think think the Bank of England... So you think they're handling it the right way? ...is handling it Well, let's hope you're right. Um, The difficulty with all of this, always, uh, is the speed of response. Mm. And sometimes you find that central banks have to act very suddenly which risks creating an economic shock. So investors need to watch inflation? Very carefully. Yeah, no, I think that's, I, this is a view that I've formed very, very much. Now, everyone's back from holiday. Dominic Raab was on a beach in Crete or wherever he was and had to come home. And I guess, well, I, I mean, you probably staycationed this year, didn't you? If I can possibly get away with it with the rest of my family, I would always stay. <laughs> you want just the aggro of planes with and... six children, going through airports is not six fun. Yes. Um, whereas being in Somerset is a joy. So um, I sometimes, uh, you know, there's family pressure to, to go away, but being in Somerset is, suits me down to the ground. So, yes, we're, we're staycationing and a few days holiday at Lord's. Is, uh, yeah, Lord's, as well. yes, and, of course, um, the House of Commons tomorrow. Well, the House of Commons tomorrow. Which, uh, which will be, a, I was saying earlier to Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, it'll be a full House of Commons, or relatively full, for, for the first time. That's right. We're back to normal. The um, exceptional COVID procedures have gone. People will have to turn up in person. There will be no more proxy voting. But it's really important that the House comes back to discuss an issue of the magnitude of our withdrawal from Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and the rapid advance of the Taliban, that this is about holding the government to account. And over recent years, there have been lots of constitutional discussions about whether Parliament should have a vote before military action. That always seemed to me to miss the point about what Parliament does Parliament holds the government to account for its actions rather than writing out a blank cheque before the actions take place. So tomorrow I get that. we'll see the really proper functioning of our constitution with a debate led by the Prime Minister, but in a sense, closed Jacob, by the Foreign Secretary. But in a sense, Jacob, I mean, you, I, mean I get that, yeah. but it's a sideshow, because the reality is Biden did this. Biden made this decision. He didn't consult with us. He didn't consult with NATO. He, whether, I mean, whether... He just, 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 you know, got the wrong intelligence briefings or made his own mind up. I just don't know what happened here. But the truth is that Biden has made a fundamental error and a serious blunder. Well, I, I heard you earlier discussing the relationship between the UK and the US in military yeah, terms. Yeah, I'm worried about it. Um, but it's worth remembering that when Ronald Reagan invaded Granada, yep. he didn't tell the British government and the Queen was head of state of Granada. And... Yes. So the, yes, and the, Mrs. Thatcher was furious. was furious. Yes. But the habit of America acting is one of um, long-standing, and it is a recognition that America is the world superpower, and we're not. We are an ally, yeah. and I therefore don't think we should be surprised that America decided on its policy first. That, well, that, that is how, that's how America acts, even I think when the president is somebody like Ronald Reagan, who you and I yeah, would hold have in the highest yeah. regard. No, I mean, look, it goes further than that, actually, because, you know, we've given uh, travel 
for double-jabbed Americans into the UK without quarantine. They haven't reciprocated. The trade deal between the US and the UK has slipped down the agenda. So the special relationship is facing real problems. The difference between the big upset over Grenada and this is, you know, one of the senior bo- well, when one of the senior bosses of MI5 says it's likely to embolden jihadis living uh, within Europe and within the United Kingdom, this is a decision that impacts upon us. I mean, do you feel let down by Biden? No, I don't. The decision, as you know, was initially taken by Donald Trump that he decided that the withdrawal needed but the question to was, take but place. But the question was how? Yes, I, I accept that, but the fundamental decision is an important one. Yeah. Um, and that it was one made by America in which the uh, UK government um, needed to follow. That the idea that we could go it alone is um, impractical, oh, 19th yeah. century. No one is proposing yeah. that. No, it's not, it's that. not a rational thing to be doing. And I think the question now is how it is handled further, what we can do in discussions with um, neighbouring countries, with particularly Pakistan and the other countries nearby with whom we have more or less friendly relationships. It's never easy. No. But the initial objective was achieved of making al-Qaeda um, dysfunctional. In 2002? In 2002. Yeah. And then the withdrawal was always going to be extremely difficult. It's never easy to, no. to withdraw. No. There's never a good time but this, to But this one was done without planning and thought, and there are thousands of nationals between the Brits and, and the Americans stranded there. But, I mean, Jacob... And, and everyone's been very surprised by the speed of the advance uh, of the time. It just shows you, if you believe experts, they're very often wrong, you see, because all the experts said that, you know, they would... Fancy you saying that. Well, it's all back to the Brexit referendum. And, you know, you and I are very much on the same side on that. And, and, and I think, you know, both emotionally involved in that. We believed in it with all our heart and soul. Um, I was unhappy. We, we didn't fall out, but I, I, I was unhappy that you in the end voted for Mrs May's dreadful deal. But I'm not going to have a punch-up over that with you today. Um, well, we got there in the end and we, we got a we new, discussed new leader. That we, no, I mean, that's the point. I mean, thank goodness we got rid of Mrs May, and I, I, I like to think I played a bit of a hand in that. Um, and we've got Boris and we've got Brexit done. It's not perfect. You know, the fishermen are angry, mm. um, really angry. And if you drove from your constituency an hour and a half, two hours southwest to Brixham Market, or I recommend you don't at the moment. Um, they really are jolly angry about it, the way it's worked out. But constitutionally, we finished up with Northern Ireland. It's been effectively annexed. Uh, what are we going to do, Jacob, to sort that out? Is the will there? I hear Lord Frost, who I think did a jolly good job as negotiator, and I hear him saying tough things. Are we going to sort out Northern Ireland? Because if we don't, I do fear... The knock-on for the rest of the Union is quite significant. Northern Ireland is a fundamental part of our country. Northern Ireland is as much part of our country. But it was. As Somerset. No, it, it was. It, it still is. And the, the, you cannot allow the European Union to extract Northern Ireland from the United Kingdom. And you're right to say that mm. the EU has not implemented what it agreed with the goodwill that we had a reasonable expectation mm. could apply. It has not applied the flexibilities. It has not even uh, recognised um, animals in the UK as being from the safest countries of all. And, and as the problem with rabies has always been <laughs> the continent to us rather than us. And she threatened us with that. She, she threatened to put the hard border back. And, and we know all of that. But does there, does the, does the, there come a point when we have to say, look, you've been completely unreasonable about this. The British government is completely committed to ensuring that Northern Ireland remains a fundamental part of our United Kingdom. Lord Frost is, as you said earlier, mm. a tough negotiator. Mm. Uh, the British government is going to ensure that Northern Ireland is, so there is, work, is protected. There is work to be done. There is there work, is work to, be to be done, and it needs yeah. to be done at a yeah. sensible pace. And yeah. we need to try... We, you and I both want a relationship with the EU which is one of goodwill. And we want to get to Ideally. that. But we need to understand, and you probably understand it better than I do because of being an MEP and mm. perhaps being more intimately involved, um, that they feel very hurt still with us and are very angry with us. And there is still... Um, oh, yeah. Yes? Oh, yeah. And it is in our interest in the long term to have a friendly relationship with the EU. So we want to ensure that Northern Ireland is protected... But at, the moment, Without... but at the moment, it's not being protected. No, I mean, this is work in progress. Jacob, gonna, one last thing to discuss with you before we're out of time. When I said you were coming on earlier, a lot of people said, Jacob Rees-Mogg, where's he gone? <laughs> I mean, we had Mogmentum, we had this, 
there was a movement that suggested that Jacob could quite possibly become the leader of the Conservative Party. And what Jacob thought and what Jacob said on every issue was covered by all the newspapers from left to right. And we got to find out your views and your strong Christian faith and how you won't be bullied on social issues. And we learned all of those things. And this potential leader. And you've disappeared. But your leader of the House... You make some witty remarks in the House, and that's all well and good, and the business of the House of Commons is very important. But, Jacob, you've disappeared. Well, I'm here. I have a, well, I'm very I'm, I'm, pleased you are, but we haven't seen you doing interviews. We haven't seen... I mean, have they bought you off with this position, Leader of the House? No. In, in government, as you know, you're bound by collective responsibility. Yes. And you have your area of responsibility, and other ministers have theirs. Um, my area of responsibility is the business of the House of Commons, the government. Yeah, but your fans want to see you, Jacob. Well, I'm delighted to come on your programme and <laughs> hope you will invite me back again. Well, there we are. We've got Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's turned up with his own cider. And I think if he drinks a few more of those, maybe we'll see a lot, 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 lot more of him. I want to thank Jacob Rees-Mogg for coming in for Talking Pints. We're nearly at the end of the show. We've got to that moment of, yup, it's Barrage the Farage, where you put in your questions. Uh, they are sent through to me, and I never know what they're going to be. I have not had any previous sight of them. So here goes on this Tuesday evening. George on email asks, how long do you think it could be before we see the US and allied forces back in Afghanistan? I don't think it's going to happen, because I think now, given that the Taliban have got huge amounts of military kit that they've taken off the Afghan army, who we partially helped to equip, that now to go back in and to fight against these people would be an incredibly costly and dangerous thing to do. And I don't believe, that, I don't believe the political will is there to do it. Adrienne, on email, asks me, if you were elected PM tomorrow, well, it doesn't work like that, but never mind, what would your priorities be for the first 100 days in office? My first priority would be to have a most massive party um, and have a great fun and get Jacob to provide the cider. I think the priorities, the priorities in this country right now have got to be, we have got to recognise these divides are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Some of it sponsored through universities that want to divide us on the grounds of class on the grounds of sexuality, other campaigns that are happy to divide us on the grounds of race. And I would just like us all to be treated exactly the same and to live in a society that was far more meritocratic, frankly, than it is right at this moment in time. But it's not going to happen. We don't vote for prime ministers. We don't have a presidential election. We sort of almost de facto do, but we don't really. Johnny on email asks me, do you ever miss having topical debates with Guy Verhofstadt in the European Parliament? Jacob likes that one. Um, Verhofstadt is just a fanatic. He's a maniac. I mean, he wants the ancient nations of Europe to be abolished and swallowed up by this ghastly bureaucracy. Uh, but I did have a lot of fun with him um, over there. The one person I miss is Juncker. And Juncker, who you know, was very often downwind of a few in the afternoons, it has to be said. I disagreed with him politically, but you know what? As a person, I quite liked him. And you can respect... It's true, Jacob, isn't it? We can respect people that we don't agree with, and in a civilised democracy, that is the way that it needs to be. It really, really is. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, as ever, for your Barrage the Farages, thank you to Jacob, thank you to all of our guests today. I'm back tomorrow with you at seven.